listening to a Larry Sanders show podcast. Don't you know that you're all a part of the show? So the better you are, the better Larry is. But Larry's not here. So the pressure's off. I hope you'll enjoy this Larry Sanders recap podcast. Watch along in conversation show. Hello, and welcome to It's the Larry Sanders Show's show. I'm here with my vegetative co-host, Max. And I'm here with my carnitative co-host, Jason. We will be your guides each week as we break down a new episode of The Larry Sanders Show. This week, we're discussing The Flirt, which aired on September 19th, 1992. It was directed by Ken Quapis and written by Gary Shandling and Fred Barron. In this episode, Larry runs some chemistry tests on air and off, and Paula wrangles an over-eager guest. Guest stars include a lot of Mimi Rogers and a little of Michael Richards. We have a great show for you this week. If you thought we were making strides last time, look at us now. We have someone central to the creation of season one of The Larry Sanders Show. Our special guest this week is the aforementioned director, Ken Quapis. I'm very excited to talk to him, so why don't we take a break right now and start the interview. Welcome back to It's the Larry Sanders Show's show. We have an amazing guest for this episode. He was the director who launched the style of the Larry Sanders Show by directing eight of the 13 episodes in season one, plus several more in season two. He is an award-winning director of 11 motion pictures and several television episodes. His motion pictures include A Walk in the Woods, He's Just Not That Into You, and The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. His nine television series, which he helped launch, include The Larry Sanders Show, The Bernie Mac Show, and The Office, including the pilot of The Office, the, season, the series finale, and many memorable episodes such as Casino Night, Booze Cruise, Diversity Day, and Gay Witch Hunt. He's also the producer-director of Fox's Malcolm in the Middle, where he earned an Emmy nomination for his work. Most recently, our guest directed the entire second season of Netflix's Space Force, which I'm enjoying at the moment. He's also the author of the memoir, but what I really want to do is direct, published by St. Martin's Press in 2020. Let's welcome director Ken Quapis. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank thanks. you. Thank you for having me. We're really excited to have you on here because we're talking, as we've been talking about the, you know, the start of the Larry Sanders show, you know, we want to hear about it from someone who was there right at the beginning. Um, so why don't you tell us what was, what was the process of getting involved in the show like? I was uh, asked to meet Gary by his then manager, Brad Gray. Uh, I'd known Brad, and Brad liked my work, recommended me to Gary. Um, the show was already in pre-production when I interviewed with Gary. Some cast members had been selected, uh, not everyone, but a set was being built. So it wasn't like I came in on truly on the ground floor the way I did on other shows. Uh, but, you know, very quickly, I, you know, met with Gary, we got on very well, 
We uh, talked at great length about the look of the show, the tone of the show. And, uh, and again, he felt comfortable with me, and, and I was invited right from the get-go to direct most of the first season. So had Brad Gray mentioned any particular work that he liked? Did, what caught his eye from your previous directorial work? Well, the feature film I directed before The Larry Sanders Show, which I co-directed with my now wife, Marissa Silver, was the romantic comedy He Said, She Said with Kevin Bacon and Elizabeth Perkins. So I know that Brad had seen that film, and I think that um, what, and I don't know if Gary saw it actually, but I think that what Brad uh, enjoyed about the film was the, 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 the performances. And, you know, first and last, The Larry Sanders Show is a performance-driven series. And, uh, and so whoever was going to direct the show, you know, I, I, I know that Gary wanted somebody who knew how to talk to actors. Right before I met with Gary, um, I directed two episodes of a short-lived CBS series called Erie, Indiana. I'm really proud of the show. And it was only on for a season, I believe. But one of the two episodes I directed was entitled Reality Takes a Holiday. And it's one of the trippier half hours of television I've ever directed. Uh, it was written by Vance uh, DeGeneres. Uh, and this, the plot of the episode is that the main character of the series, strangely, finds a copy of the script of the episode that he's in, in the mailbox. And so, so it, the episode is a remarkably meta and pretty sophisticated uh, look at how a show is made. So it, in fact, has a backstage quality to it. And I believe that Brad saw that. Now, it's a very, it couldn't be more different than the Larry Sanders show, but it is ultimately a kind of a surrealistic backstage story about putting, about a television show. What were the types of decisions that you and Gary were making in those early pre-production days? Like, had the idea of shooting part on videotape and part on film already been made? Or were you part of the discussions on figuring that, you know, those sorts of questions out? That decision had been made by Gary. Um, I believe Gary uh, had hired Peter Smokler to be the uh, DP for the show. And Peter Smokler uh, came to the Larry Sanders show with some great mockumentary credentials. He uh, was the cinematographer on Rob Reiner's debut feature, This is Spinal Tap. And uh, some years later, I invited Peter Smokler to be the the DP on the pilot of The Office. So um, Gary and I spoke a lot about how to shoot the show. And specifically, Gary wanted a, 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 a camera style that was very unobtrusive. Uh, we never talked about the show as being mock doc, a mock documentary at all. But what he you know, wanted, though, was to have a, a camera style where that was, you know, observant, never in your face. Uh, you know, very much the opposite of certain kinds of shows that I, that I either worked on or would work on, like Malcolm in the Middle, for instance, has a very kind of high-definition uh, comic visual style. You know, the, and the Larry, Larry Sanders show is just the opposite, uh, very, very laid back. So a lot of what... I uh, talked to Gary about was 
how often to even do conventional coverage of any kind. In some of the early episodes, uh, particularly the pilot episode, Hey Now, which Gary chose to air late in the first season, there are some scenes in that uh, episode that are actually very very austere in the in terms of coverage. I mean, there's like, or I, maybe let me put it a different way. There are no cuts. There are no. There's no coverage. And in, in fact, I was thinking about one scene in particular, which I'm really fond of. It's near the climax of the episode, where uh, Larry and Hank have a you know kind of a confrontation in the makeup room, and um, I remember that you know Gary and Jeffrey were sitting, you know, facing makeup mirrors, and the camera was behind them, and for a large portion of the dialogue, were on their backs. There's no cutting. There's no coverage. Um, at a certain point, they kind of face each other. This is when Hank stands and reveals that he wears a corset on the show, and, and, and Larry makes fun of him. But there's, there's no coverage. And for me, it, 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 to me, it was fantastic because those two actors are so good why you know why why have why cut why have cutting let the two actors kind of play let them develop the rhythm of the scene so um, at the very beginning of the show there was a sense of you know not wanting to be too intrusive in terms of um, shooting and cutting that changed but you know again what I love particularly in that episode is long stretches that play out in a single take. We've been talking about that a lot as we've been going through each of the episodes and it's your episodes that you directed are an even more extreme version of that than the ones that were done by other people. It seems like yours are even more in almost in a, like a cinema verite style with like a, you know, a fly on the wall type of observation. Do you, were you thinking about any, documentary type filmmaking when you were you know planning out how you wanted to you know f frame things or block scenes I mean I, I definitely thought a lot about classic cinema verite you know filmmakers like the Maisel Brothers and D.A. Pennebaker and you know thinking about films like Salesman the, the Maisel Brothers film but I but I again tried not to think of the shooting the camera style as being documentary like again I, I what I like is the idea that um, we were never in the characters faces we were never the camera was never in the actors faces we were always just a bit you know far enough back we were shooting in 16 millimeter by the way which uh, gave us a lot of versatility you know like the great cinema verite filmmakers we had a lot of portability in terms of our camera you know, we had we had one or two 16 millimeter cameras, usually just up on somebody's shoulder. As you're mentioning it, <clears throat> sorry, it sounds like one of the advantages of this style that you have is being able to allow the performers to kind of like live in their performances, and it's the episodes that you directed sometimes have this feeling that the performances are almost improvisational, even though it seems like they are probably tightly scripted. You, it almost is like you leave in it, it you leave in a, like a, like a little stumble over the word or something in, in the episodes that you directed. So how, 
how much truth is there in that? It, were they very tightly scripted and it's just that was just the effect of the filmmaking that you were working with? Or was there actually improvisation going on in those scenes that you were making available? I, I recall that we mainly stuck to the scripts. And what I tried my best to do was just encourage the cast to, you know, kind of not feel like they're putting on a, a show or a comedy. That, you know, that, that my job as a director was to simply observe the, the behavior of these people. And so I, I feel like certain kinds of stumbles and certain kinds of mistakes are, you know, very welcome. Uh, I, again, all, all credit to Gary for not editing some of those things out and, and, you know, kind of maintaining a certain rawness in some of those episodes. But again, it was my choice at times to not cover things. So there was no choice. <laughs> it was my choice to give, give the editors no choice. And um, I, I, I'll mention one thing. I've talked about this in the past, but um, at a certain point, there was a certain point in pre-production where Gary asked me if we could figure out a, a shooting method where the actors would never know whether the cameras were on or not. And I, at first, couldn't figure out how to do that because, you know, there's a whole series of commands that happen before the, the scene begins. There's, you know, sound rolling. There's, a, you know, the, the clapper. Um, and, and so it was hard to figure out how we would suddenly just be in a scene without, the act, without anyone knowing the cameras were rolling. Well, I did come up with something that has had a great effect on me as a director is that I, I made a, you know, I, I sort of discussed with Peter Smokler and with the sound recordist that I would just give a hand signal to start the cameras rolling and, and the assistant director would not, you know, announce, you know, rolling or anything like that. And then uh, when I was certain that the cameras were rolling, I would just turn to Gary and say, uh, okay, go ahead. And sometimes what Gary would do after I'd say go ahead is he'd just start chatting with the cast. He would just, you know, they, they, the cameras were rolling and Gary was just schmoozing with the cast. People were joking, etc. And if Gary had the first line in the scene, what often happened is uh, he'd be chatting away and suddenly just launch into his line without any any break, and and the actors then just followed suit and we were in a scene. So it what it did is it created a very uh, what's the right way to put it? It certainly created a very kind of low key performance style for the show. There was a sense that the actors didn't start acting. They just kind of moseyed into a scene. It helped give the, um, the show a, a kind of lived-in feeling. And I do know that one of the things Gary was very concerned about is, is making sure there was a level of reality about the show, about the, the, not the show within the show, but that too, but, but that, the, that it really felt credible. When I was... Uh, Prepping the show, uh, Gary invited me to accompany him to uh, the Tonight Show. It was close to the end of Johnny Carson's, however many decades he was <laughs> the host of the Tonight Show. But it was towards the end, and Gary was a guest. And Gary asked me to come along and just hang out with him in the hallway and 
look at the green room, see how, you know, see how the set looked, etc. I'd never been to a talk show, so it was kind of essential research for me. And um, what I loved about it was uh, observing people just coming and going down the halls, PAs talking, Doc Severinsen, you know, coming around the corner, talking to a PA about something, talking about nothing in particular. And Gary loved listening to people sort of, you know, chat about things that were kind of just you know, not essential. And he even said to me when we were standing there in the hall, he goes, I'd love to do an episode where that takes place entirely in a hallway where all you do is listen to people uh, go up and down and you get little snatches of conversation, a very, very kind of Robert Altman-y kind of idea. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I remember he mentioned that while we were waiting in the Tonight Show hallway. So I want to pivot a little bit to the production of the show within the show. Um, our understanding is it was Friday nights and audience would come in for the monologue. Can you describe a little bit of that production and also sort of the, the feeling in the room? We, we did the live show, I believe, every third week. So the way our typ a typical week would go on Larry Sanders, we'd rehearse for th two or three days. And, uh, and during those three days of rehearsal, there'd be a lot of rewriting. But we got the scenes, we got all the scenes on their feet. And then Thursday and Friday, we'd shoot the episode, the, the, the uh, I'll call it the backstage story. And then every third Friday night, we'd have uh, a taping of the show within the show. And the reason uh, we did that was probably for economic reasons, because that required a whole other crew. And in fact, uh, we... I, I didn't do, I didn't really and I don't know about the other directors you'll have to ask Todd this I never directed the show within the show it was done by a, you know somebody who actually may have come from the Tonight Show in fact but you know Gary's goal was to make it uh, look exactly like a taping of the Tonight Show would be right down to the framing how far away the cameras were etc so that was done literally. All of that was done by someone in a booth, not myself. Now, there were there was always a film component to any live scene. So, typically, uh, there'd be a 16 millimeter camera aimed at Rip Torn while a live scene was going on that was being taped by two or three cameras. And so, I'd be directing that. So I I was there, right. but not directing the the actual quote taping. It was complicated because. For instance, if you're Mimi Rogers and you have a role in the story, you also then need to come back a couple weeks later for the Friday night taping, the live taping. But that was, a, you know, again, a tricky scheduling thing for a lot of the guests. Just talking about the Mimi Rogers episode, The Flirt. So at the end of her live, the, you know, the, the, the live segment, the show within the show, Larry signs off and then just walks abruptly away from the from the desk, and Mimi's sort of stuck there. Now we may have actually shot that little piece, uh, not on the Friday night. That that was something we wanted to finesse, and 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 it's a private moment, so it's something we wanted to finesse, uh, not with a with, with a studio audience sitting there. So at times there were things that we would break out and 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 shoot, uh, you know during our normal shooting days. And so the, the episode we're covering on this episode is the flirt. And you, you know, you've been mentioning all of the backstage, just at, you know, 
the complications of running you know multiple cameras at the same time 16 and video at the same time and you know it seems like that mirrors what happens on the the actual larry sanders show itself when they're having to book guests and do all these things and so you tell a story in your book about trying to figure out who the celebrity that gary or that larry is going to be flirting with on the show is would you mind telling us about telling us about those sure. complications sure at the, you know at the at the top of the week um i believe we sent the script out to uh it was either julia roberts or sarah jessica parker i can't remember exactly but i do recall that the script had a couple of uh details about the you know the real life actress and uh then uh, you know, by Tuesday, that actress had passed, so the script was revised. But occasionally, some of those little details weren't removed, so that by the time Mimi agreed to be on the show, I think there were a few remnants that related to other actors who had already passed on the script. And in fact, in the final episode, I believe that there's even a moment where uh, Rip Torn's character, uh, where Arthur says, you know, say hello to your brother, and he, say, and he calls him by the wrong name, or something like that. So, the, um, but it was, it was definitely, you know, we were not on the air yet. The show had not, the show, the Larry Sanders show had not premiered. Nobody knew what it was. My impressions, watching Gary at work, was that, you know, once a week he'd pull out his personal Rolodex and try and figure out who he could talk into being on the show. Of course, once it aired... People were lining up to be on the show. But at the beginning, it felt like he was uh, definitely calling in favors from a lot of pals. Did you feel like you were you had to be scrambling all the time to get it done with all of those shifts and who was going to be the guest? And then if the episode had to be rewritten around that new guest? That didn't happen a lot. That The, the, the flirt was the one I definitely remember. But I, I feel like there was a lot of scrambling in general. A lot of it was because we only, I mean, again, as I mentioned, we rehearsed for three days and shot for two days. So we essentially shot, again, it's 16 millimeter. The light, there's not a lot of complicated lighting. But, uh, you know, we shot the better part of a 30-page script in two days. It was, it was wow. not easy. And then three every third week, that Friday was not simply a shooting day. It was a live taping night as well. So that was a marathon day. I'm getting tired just talking about it. It's exhausting. <laughs> um, so we did have some questions about the um, the airing order and how that differed from the production order. Do you have any memories about how those decisions were made? Were you involved in those decisions? I was not involved in the decision to um, hold the pilot episode until late in the first season. Um, my My sense is that uh, Gary wanted to lead off with a maybe a more accessible episode. I want to ask you, because you've done both television and film, what do you think is kind of the difference in you know your creative freedom or what sort of choices you get to make as a director when you're directing in television, which seems much more of like a often is portrayed at least as a more of a writer's or a producer's medium versus film, which is often described as a director's medium. How does that differ? I, I mean, I personally feel that, um, you know, there's, there are plenty of feature films that 
you know, don't don't seem particularly filmic to me, and there are plenty of television series that seem as cinematic as anything. And and for me, I think the tricky thing is, I don't need to tell you guys this, but you know, I think sometimes people don't take comedy as seriously as they do drama, and 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 it's hard to explain the craft choices that really help make a comedy scene work well. In, you know, in addition to having great performers and a, and, and, and a good scene, but just you know, the craft choices that, again, give a scene its, its sturdiness or, or give a scene some surprise, like that pan to Artie and Beverly you know, in Hey Now. So I feel like you know, in television, the, the, the other challenge for a director is that you are you know, more often than not serving someone else's vision, a showrunner or creator's vision. And so uh, for me, the challenge, I love this challenge, but it's, it's like trying to find out where your interests and the showrunners intersect. And, and in a way, it's like you're, you get to be like an actor. You get to play a different role. I am, I am a different, I'm a, I am, in a way, a di I get to exercise different directorial muscles if I'm doing an episode of Malcolm in the Middle than if I'm doing an episode of Freaks and Geeks, for example. Um, so one of the many moments I, I really love from your memoir is um, you reflect a little bit on the pattern in your career of workplace comedies. And I would add to that maybe family comedies as well. Bernie Mac and Malcolm in the Middle are, are especially um, good family sitcoms. Uh, I've watch both of them while they were on the air and love them. Um, what, uh, what do you think draws you to workplace comedies in particular? What, what sort of dynamics are at play that really interest you throughout your career? I love, I love the idea of stories about a group of people who have a common problem to solve. And whether it's a series or a film, I love films like, uh, oh, these are some random examples, like the Cary Grant, Howard Hawks film, Only Angels Have Wings, you know, about a group One of, of the greatest of all time. Uh, I mean, but, you know, it's a, again, it's a, it's a fantastic workplace situation where the stakes are high. Or um, the flight of the phoenix, you know, people are stranded, they need to figure out how to, how to resuscitate a, a crashed airplane. So the stakes are not nearly as high in the Larry Sanders show. May well, maybe they are though. And and uh, you know, I, I I don't often read reviews, but I do remember the New Yorker piece about the Larry Sanders show that James Wolcott wrote not long after the show aired, and he talked about that very thing, this idea that you know that there was this group effort that that to to kind of maintain one's integrity in the face of a lot of pressure to sell out. And, and, and he talked about it. I can't remember the way he described it, but there was a sense that not selling out, maintaining your integrity, well, that's a high-stakes game. And, and that's what the show was about to him. So I kind of, I, I, to me, that, that's, uh, that's one of the things I love about the Larry Sanders project. What's it like when you're having to work with animals, whether it's the spiders on the Larry Sanders show, the orangutan in Dunstan, or uh, Big Bird himself? <laughs> uh, the spiders uh, really freaked me out 
on the Larry Sanders show. But I also, what I really recall about the spiders, uh, not were less the spiders themselves, but the, the really kind of weirdly low-key spider trainer. <laughs> it was like, who's, who's, you know, who wants to be a reptile trainer? I, I uh, you know, are spiders reptiles? I'm not even sure. The, um, but uh, I, 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 um, I, I feel like without, for reasons I can't really explain, I've directed a lot of animals. In fact, I, I directed a capuchin, I think that's how you pronounce it, a capuchin monkey in an episode of Malcolm in the Middle. I believe the title is Monkey Butler, and it's actually, <laughs> it's a very strong episode. Um, I would say uh, Sammy, the stage name of the orangutan, who played the role Dunstan, and Dunstan checks in, was was more cooperative and actually a little smarter than a few actors I've worked with over the years. Well, I was going to ask you about working with animals being uncooperative. What was it? What about uh, working with someone like Rip Torn? <laughs> well, um, you know, I wonder if I am the only director around who's worked with both Big Bird and Rip Torn. I have to imagine I have that claim to fame. <laughs> Um, if there's another, please find him or her. I, I have to, I have to find out. I think Max um, is fact checking that right. Fact now. checking right now. <laughs> the um, well, the, the I mean, Rip was very um, uh, nerve wracking for me, but weirdly, I got along with him. It's just that every every day he would come up and yell at me about something, and. It, it, and, and, you know, because he's a very powerful actor, you know, when he would, you know, raise his voice, uh, it was, you know, it was, it was a little intense. It was a little scary. And more often than not, what he was angry about had nothing, well, it had nothing to do with me. It usually had something to, some, it was usually some very minor thing that was easily fixable. But Rip tended to, you know, not express himself when he felt something, and instead he'd sort of let a, you know, a feeling sort of mushroom until it kind of exploded, you know, in, in like a volcano. But, uh, but no, I, I, weirdly though, I, I feel like I, I figured out how to, you know, work with him and, and, and get strong work out of him. Were there any films that you were thinking of when you were conceiving of how to bring those scripts that Gary sent you onto the screen. There's one film I, I thought, I don't remember talking to Gary about this particular film, but there was one film I definitely thought about a lot. Now it's uh, Scorsese's The King of Comedy, which of course, you know, is in part about a talk show. And, yeah. uh, but it was less about the talk show aspect and just more about the, the way, the way Scorsese, framed and composed and staged scenes, you know, in, in a way it's a very, um, it's a much simpler shooting style than a lot of Scorsese films. And, and I really felt like, uh, I really, you know, kind of admired the kind of restraint that he used in a lot of the scenes. Well, that's about it for our questions. Uh, thanks so much for doing this, Ken. We've really appreciated it and it's been fascinating to learn about all the production and directorial choices you made. Great. This was fun. Thank you for having me.
Welcome back to It's the Larry Sanders Show show. Uh, today we're covering The Flirt, Season 1, Episode 6. It premiered on September 19th, 1992. The episode, like uh, most this season, begins with uh, Hank's classic applesauce intro over the title cards. Uh, and then we move straight into the show intro uh, with Hank's voiceover. The guests on the show uh, that night were Mimi Rogers... Uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, who had their 1991 album, Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic. Big hit. Big hit. But nothing in 92, so maybe they were playing you know, the third or fourth single off that album. Uh, and the last guest is Michael Richards. So uh, Michael Richards, of course, famously played Kramer on Seinfeld, which debuted in 1989. Oh. So I looked up, at this time, season four was also premiering. So season four of Seinfeld was just like started a week before the Larry Sanders show. You know, they were in just a really robust, great period of Seinfeld, in my opinion. Mm. Seasons three, four, five, excellent. But the Larry Sanders show was actually a promotional stop for real celebrities who wanted to be guests, you know, to promote their own shows. So it is possible that Michael Richards is on there, not just as a guest because he's has a funny scene in this episode, but also because talking about Seinfeld is good for Seinfeld actually on NBC. Uh, but we open, of course, on uh, Larry Sanders coming out of the curtains for his monologue. It's a classic wide shot on Larry. We see a little bit of the audience. Um, I will note Larry or Gary is wearing a just terrible 1990s double-breasted jacket. Just from today's purview, just looks so old-fashioned and weird. Um, but, you know, very popular at the time. You'll see many other people on TV wearing very similar suits. Uh, his monologue is very short, only a couple of jokes. Um, he has a very sort of strange, twisted joke about Princess Diana having bulimia, according to the tabloids. Um, the premise is sort of mocking the fact she has bulimia, which is not great, but he just passes it to Hank for a punchline about silverware, which just totally avoids the topic, and it's, I don't know, it's a very strange <laughs> setup in a monologue. There's also another monologue joke here about Ross Perot dropping out of the 1992 presidential race. Again, just a very strange joke about the silent T in his name. It does not go over well, and it only gets a laugh because Hank sort of like breaks and uh, starts laughing how, at how bad the joke is. Um, I will note Perot, very interesting career, very interesting use of television at the time. So he famously dropped out of the race in this period and then re-entered on October 1st to participate in the debates. And he also used his status as a billionaire to buy 30-minute segments on network television as an ad. So he would buy a 30-minute block of ad time to basically just talk to viewers at home and give a lecture about his campaign and economics and the financial system in the United States. Uh, and it's it's very odd for those who are interested in, you know, some electoral politics and uh, I don't know how billionaires can buy elections. Right. It's it's a very interesting instance of that, which I'll, I'll be researching further. And so this is a pretty short monologue, only about two jokes. Um, and so then Larry doesn't again. I'm going to say this, this is on. I'm getting on my hobby horse about this, but he says don't flip around still never saying no flipping 
And so then they cut to the soundstage where Mimi Rogers is now on panel. And uh, she's wearing a, an interesting black dress with a feather neckline. Um, and she has her feet up on the couch, her shoes off. She seems very relaxed. And she's, very touching, she's touching Larry repeatedly throughout the segment. And as is the title of the episode, they are having a very flirtatious conversation. Um, you know, they talk about the Zodiac. They talk about nude scenes. I just want to note for people keeping track of Larry's biography. He is a Sagittarius. He mentioned this in this segment. Mm -hmm. Hank is a Capricorn. Less relevant, we learn Mimi Rogers is an Aquarius. Um, But Larry also makes a great joke, which I think I'll start using in my personal life. Uh, My rising sign is kindling. In addition, uh, at the end of this panel, Larry invites Mimi Rogers back for the next night. She didn't have a chance to tell her Academy Awards story. And they hit it off so great that she's going to come back the next night. And Hank, as smart as Hank is, notes that this is a new precedent. They've never had a guest two nights in a row. And it's especially a big slap in the face to Michael Richards, who has now been bumped because Mimi Rogers and Larry went long with their flirtation. And also, uh, Mimi Rogers gets to come back tomorrow. One assumes Michael Richards is not given that same honor. Right. So we see Richards in the green room. Uh, we then see a, a quick post-show debrief uh, backstage where, you know, Mimi Rogers tries to continue the flirtation with Larry, but he's not really having it. She has this great line. How do you come down from a show like that? And Larry jokes, jazzercise. Uh, and then we move through the hallways with Larry and Artie, and they stop by Michael Richards' green room to apologize for bumping him. Uh, they assure him that they will still pay him for the appearance, even though he did not appear. Artie also then goes into who's coming up next on tomorrow's show. Uh, We have Billy Connolly, uh, who's a very funny comedian. I'm not sure what he would have been promoting at the time because a a sitcom he was on, Head of the Class, where he replaced the main actor in the last season, that had been canceled. And it's brief spinoff Billy, where he continues to play the same character, Uh also canceled by this time. So he was, I don't know what he would have been promoting. We also have the Pixies coming on. I don't know about you, Max, but I'm a big Pixies fan. Alt-rock. Uh, in 1991, their fourth album, which is not their best, in my opinion, uh, Trump Mamon came out. So maybe they're still, you know, touring off the buzz of that. Uh, and we also see uh, Hank walking by with a blonde babe on his arm. Um, they're going to the smokehouse for a beer ski. Um, and dinner, and Artie makes a joke about the veal. Very, very Artie type of joke. So now we cut to Larry's house, where he is watching the show with Jeannie and has to see the fruits of, of his flirtation on the screen. There's a great directorial choice here of like really framing just the TV inside the TV stand. So this focus on how people watch TV just as a TV. There's also another great shot. This is, as you know, as we noted earlier, this was shot by Ken Quapis, that you have Larry sitting back, like, up against the wall in bed, nervously watching as Jeannie is in the foreground, you know, face close to the TV, and Larry is, you know, watching the, t- the show while also watching Jeannie's reaction because he's so nervous about what she's going to think about it. She's fascinated. He keeps trying to interrupt. She gets mad at him for interrupting. Um, and she... She's just sort of, I think, trying to analyze what Larry's actually doing on screen here. Um, she, interestingly, she laughs at the, a joke Hank made during the segment about Harry, or 
Larry having affairs. Yeah, she I don't know if that's if that's a real thing or whether she's aware of that, but she she seems to still find it funny. Yeah, she doesn't seem upset by it. She seems kind of uh, maybe like she's using it as an opportunity to to like kind of needle Larry a little bit until the scene happens where he invites Mimi Rogers back for the second for the second night. And she realizes like, oh, this is uh, this is real. This isn't just uh, no, this is something out of the ordinary. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote down a great line that Jeannie has here. I really I really love quote. Do you fuck her on the desk or on the couch? Uh, and then she follows us up, follows it up with this weird implication about, you know, Hank being on the couch. And that's uncomfortable for Larry, which also, I think, sort of implies that Larry is uncomfortable with threesomes. Or maybe particularly man, man, woman threesomes, and maybe that was you know on offer from Jeannie at some point, and he turned her, her down. I'm not sure. It's sort of understated in the scene. And uh, one last thing for our you know close watching listeners, they actually use a different take of the talk show scene when you're seeing it on the monitor in their room when they're rewatching the show. So it's not actually the the same take that we see previously in the previous scene. The scene ends with uh, Jeannie emphasizing that there's a difference between Larry at home as she knows him and Larry on the screen, what he's doing in the show. Which and is that, pretty symbolic of everything in the entire series. Their entire relationship is about she gets one side of him, but she doesn't trust or doesn't feel comfortable with the other side of him. So then we cut to the next day when we're at the writer's room and the writers are pitching sketch ideas. In the, in here, we've got our classic Jerry and Phil, but we also have the other writer played by Mindy Sterling. Her first appearance on the show, one of only three, and I, I think this is her best appearance. And uh, they're talking about, you know, a Batman sketch. But Jerry can't finish it. He can't come up with a good punchline or closer. So when Artie comes in and says, because Mimi Rogers is back, the sketch has to be cut... They pretend like they had finally figured it out and it was perfectly written. Right. Uh, as, you know, buzzing in the office continues, we go to Paula's desk. Uh, she catches Artie and Larry walking by um, to talk about someone she has on the phone, the Bengals. The Bengals would like to reunite on the Larry Sanders show. Seems like a big get to me. So are you a Bengal head? I don't know if I'm a head, but I definitely, uh, you know, know the hits. Did you know that they broke up in 1989? So only a few years later, they're ready to reunite. The fan base is still there. I'm sure they would love it. This would have been, I think, a huge ratings boom for the show. Just a, a very big get. And they turn it down. Why? Well, so Artie uh, gets them mixed up with Wilson Phillips. And uh, then Larry jokes about the temptations. And then Artie ends by saying, well, why don't you just get meatloaf? Uh, so then... They they decide not to go with the Bengals. Paula gets back on the phone very quietly, you know, turns down their manager, whoever As she she's often talking to. Is forced to do. Yeah, it's to me it's a tragic scene. What could have been this Bengals reunion? But I would like to note for the true Bengal heads out there, not you, Max. Mm-hmm. You I'm you Bengal heads know this already. They actually did reunite in nineteen ninety eight, and it was for a song on the soundtrack of Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, the second Austin Powers, which features Mindy Mindy Sterling. Sterling. Ah, it's great. Also, interesting, the director of Austin Powers, Jay Roach, married one of the Bengals. So then we cut to Larry's office at his desk where Larry and Artie are watching the Rogers panel like it's the Zapruder film to uh, check for the scenes of the flirting. 
And uh, instead of using that Zapruder film metaphor or an analogy like I did, they make the more uh, topical reference by saying it's like they're watching the Rodney King tape. I think Artie says, don't make me watch it like it's the Rodney King tape where we're trying to analyze every millisecond. Which is extremely uh, relevant. And as you've been bringing up a lot of uh, shockwaves of Rodney King and, you know, what happened, how it affected Los Angeles uh, are affecting this this season of Larry Sanders. Right. One of many instances where they directly or indirectly allude to Rodney King and the riots in L.A. Um, I like you mentioned earlier, this is a different take from the Rogers panel. So the joke I mentioned earlier, my rising sign is kindling. Here, Larry says, actually, kindling is my rising sign, which is a less less, less funny, funny construction. Yeah. And, you know, they're looking at these things like the hand on the hand. And this is all the hand on the hand as a sign of flirtation and, you know, the way that they're talking to each other. And this is all very similar to, you know, the same sort of analysis that, you know, com- that all sorts of comedians would do when looking at Johnny Carson to see if they liked their stand up sets and it's uh it's all an over you know over analysis and believing that these little things are symbolic of something else but you know Artie's done the hand on the hand with Gregory Peck so that doesn't mean that you know shows it means nothing um Beverly then interrupts Artie scoots out uh we learn about the civilian they've booked the soap carver Bert Crawley Larry has the great line what a coup Leno will be jealous uh, Leno, of course, has Julia Roberts that night. Um, and as we learned from Ken Quapis, she was originally slated to be in the Mimi Rogers role in this episode. So maybe this is an artifact from an earlier script so somehow reused here. He's really anxious about this whole situation. He's already said that, you know, flirting backstage prior to his marriage to Jeannie has led to him having, you know, having an affair uh, at Hank's Malibu pad. So uh, he's really trying to avoid flirting again so that he can stay good for Jeannie. And so he asks Beverly to talk to Mimi Rogers and ask her not to flirt, but don't let it know, let her know that it came from Larry. Uh, next, we moved into uh, the hallways, the hallways of the office, and we see uh, staff members, Paula and Beverly, handling different guests. So we see Beverly coming out of Mimi Rogers' uh, dressing room to, um, after telling her not to flirt. She's uncomfortable. We see Paula trying to handle the soap carver as he's like gearing up to tell what will likely be a very racist joke and then is trying to like make other ethnic substitutes to make it maybe not so racist. Um, And Hank is coming through the hallway and has a brief chat with Larry because he's just in a commercial spot for uh, Stanley Light Duty Hammers. He, of course, offers to give Larry any hammers he needs, um, but not nails. And it's clear from this moment that Larry Larry hasn't just started caring about what ads Hank does. As we know from the from the Garden Weasel, uh, you know, the ads are, in, are embarrassing to Larry, but it shows how much, how afraid he is to walk by Mimi Rogers' green room and have her potentially confront him flirt with him backstage you know all the things he doesn't want to be tempted by but she comes out confronts him and then pulls him into the into her dressing room uh before he goes in he makes a joke about he has to get his makeup you know but he wears 
uh, far less makeup than any of the other talk show hosts. And he makes this joke about Oprah actually being a small white Jewish man, which I think is very funny. Um, but then, you know, he eventually gets pulled by Mimi into the dressing room. Uh, she's obviously very flirtatious. She's wearing like a sundress. She's almost twirling in it. Uh, Larry, you know, is lying saying, Oh, I didn't know that someone would tell you not to flirt with me. No, you should actually flirt with me. He just immediately reverses his stance because he's, you know, he's being pulled in by Mimi Rogers. Uh, they talk about, you know, sort of the artificiality of whether, whether it was artificial that they were flirting on air, whether it was real, he seems to want to think it's artificial, but she knows it's real and he has to admit it's real and that they're both attracted to each other. Um, but Larry cuts off the conversation with uh, problems with his old rotator cuff, which he threw out during the monologue, which is clearly a, absurd, an absurd joke that's probably just like in his in his bank of jokes he can tell anytime. And she does a what I would say it's a very smooth move of saying that she's gonna give him the number of her chiropractor, but then says, oh, well actually I don't have his number, so I'll give you my number and you can call me to get his number. And Larry, in all of his discomfort, uh tells the same joke again about needing to get his makeup and he wears far less makeup than any other talk show host. He's clearly sort of fumbling, stumbling, not sure what to do, very nervous. And Rogers, Mimi Rogers comes in to kiss Larry on the cheek. And again, great director, directorial choice here where we're getting Rogers pretty close up and we move back a little bit as she moves in on Larry. So we keep pretty equally tight on her face as she moves in. And so then we go in back into the hallways as Larry escapes and uh, he... Uh gets interrupted in the hallway by Bert Crawley who uh you know tries to start talking to Larry something Larry of course doesn't want especially when he's about to start when uh, Mr. Crawley is about to start telling an offensive joke and uh when he sees Mimi Rogers uh coming out uh he calls her Mrs. Sanders which I think is an especially uh anxiety provoking statement for Larry and he uh runs off so Larry's next in the makeup room, uh, getting his, his makeup before the show. Uh, Hank is also there. They talk about the uh, philtrum, the space between uh, or uh, between your nose and your lips in the center. I don't know how else to describe it, but everyone understands what I'm talking about, I'm sure. And uh, Hank offers Larry the keys to his Malibu sex paradise, which I think is... You know, this is a sign of the trust that they have that Hank is willing to, like, help him cheat on his wife and that they have, you know, this is a temptation here. Hank is literally giving him the keys to temptation. We then see Jeannie coming out of the elevator, entering the offices for the show. Uh, she's walking down the hallway. Jerry, the writer, is there. She asks, where's Larry? He says in just a huge mistake that he doesn't realize maybe in Mimi Rogers dressing room. And this is just, I love Megan Gallagher's choices here. She like keeps walking, stops, turns around. There are a series of facial expressions. It's a pretty quiet scene. You everything, can see the gears turning in her yeah, head. Everything she asks, she sort of like repeats. She's trying to figure out like what's going. It's somewhat verbal, but mostly nonverbal. Um, and she also asks, what is Mimi Rogers promoting? But Jerry has no idea. So Max, what is Mimi Rogers promoting? Honestly, I don't know. So uh, the only thing I can find from 1992 for her is uh, 
a movie with Ed Begley Jr. called Dark Horse, which I don't think was a particular hit. I had never heard of it before. Um, I honestly don't think she was really promoting anything, but she, you know, she was clearly a good guest. She was probably just an interesting celebrity to have at the time. Yeah, and they did talk about how uh, she had recently been in The Rapture, which was a pretty big um, film at the time. So, you know, she was coming off of some some pretty big starring success in films. And so then we cut back to the makeup room where Hank is still offering the keys. And Hank's actually, I think this is a pretty funny joke that Hank is actually very impressed at Larry because he says that he uh, usually takes the keys by the third time he asks him. And Hank is also, uh, is shaking the keys. He's ringing the keys. A Pavlovian response. Pavlovian response. Exactly. I had the same note. And so then we go backstage where there's the, you know, the pre-show is starting to happen. And, you know, Artie says to Larry that if he notices Mimi and him getting into any dangerous flirting territory, he'll make a signal. I also want to note Quapis, you know, choice here as a director where the, this is a very simple scene, right? It's just Artie and Larry talking backstage. There's not, there's dialogue, but there's not really much movement happening. But the camera is just moving with them. It's just going. We go to the left. We go to the right. We see different angles all in one shot um, in a relatively tight area in the space um, backstage. Anyway, from this, we cut to the panel with Mimi Rogers. Mimi Rogers here is wearing in what I would say almost a childish dress. It's you know multicolored, patterned, big red bow in the front, uh, sort of a scoop neck. Um, she's in the, her previous outfit, right? She was more like a starlet. It was a black dress with feathers. It was very formal here. Maybe she's trying to do something else with this outfit. It's also very different from the sundress she was wearing previously, which was, you know, more flowing, a little more womanly, but, um, definitely more, uh, uh plainer, I would say. Um, and but, a pa- oh, please go. Mimi is, uh, imme- again, immediately flirting with Larry. Hard. Yes. Again, more more petting his arm, more touching, uh, you know, topics that are making him um, comfortable. Calling him adorable. Talking about what her parents thought about him, how he's so cute. And we see Artie at the monitor trying to signal to Larry that things are moving into a flirtatious <laughs> territory. But it's it doesn't matter. Line. Larry, the dog, is too focused on the treat in front of him. But he does, you know, he does attempt to uh, deflect over to Bert because this is, because I don't know if there's anything you can imagine that's less sexual than a semi-racist Minneapolis soap carving old man. So that, I think that would probably help to uh, smooth over the sexual tension. Larry actually gives Bert Crawley an opportunity to tell this joke that backstage he was dying to tell. And interestingly, Paula must have pounded it into his brain that he will not be telling this joke on air because he says, no, he doesn't have a joke to tell, which is just Paula at her finest. Something must have happened. We didn't see where she just nailed it, that he will absolutely under no circumstances be telling that joke. But I'm sure she she said it very politely. Um, And when Mimi takes over the you know center stage again after that, she asks Larry about his shoulder. And I think this is a very interesting moment because this is one 
where we are seeing this intimate moment, this offstage conversation now coming on camera. And I think, you know, that's that thing that Jeannie is talking about. There's the on-camera Larry and there's the off-camera Larry. And there's that, there's that distinction that works in their relationship. But when something like this happens where the where a literal offstage conversation is coming on state coming on camera that that you know that really ratchets up the tension but it's because what happens on camera could work off camera that their flirtation right. on camera works well enough that maybe it's worthwhile for them to have an affair off camera and then we cut back to Larry's bedroom a very similar shot where he and Jeannie are watching the show and uh, he's nervously watching uh, while Jeannie is very focused on the screen. And, you know, Larry wants to, you know, maybe switch to Nightline because he's feeling guilty and Jeannie's focused on watching it. And what ends up happening? We only learn this, you know, after the fact, as we see the monitor in the frame, uh, that Larry is able to successfully pivot to Burt Crawley and gets him to start singing Camp Town Races. And Mimi Rogers Classic. joins in with him. Now, Max, what do you know about Camp Town Races? Well, I know it's in you know 19th century. Stephen Foster, I think, is the songwriter. Yep. And um, you know, it's an American classic. Uh, something that someone like Bird Crawley, an old racist, would know the words to. So it was a a minstrel song originally, yeah. right? Uh, in in a you know in a kind of offensive dialect. Mm. But we don't, they don't sing it in that dialect uh, on the show. Right. I will say, I think on TV today, this would never, ever happen. But both the spontaneity of, you know, singing a song. Like on, on an actual talk show. Yeah. I don't think would ever happen. But specifically Camp Town Races. Hey, it's in the public domain. It is in the public domain. But I think specifically Camp Town Races is now understood well enough uh, as a not necessarily racist song, but a song that was used in several <laughs> racist uh, contexts. Yeah. Uh, it would not fly. Um, but it is, you know, classic Americana. And definitely desexualizes the scene with Mimi Rogers, which, you know, Jeannie thankfully observes and says that Larry got out of it this time. Right. Uh, what What is interesting to me is as we see Larry on TV, He's still sort of uncomfortable and it's, he got out of it, but I don't know if he's, he just can't believe that this situation is happening or maybe even have, has regrets about what didn't happen with Mimi Rogers. I mean, I think he's especially, he gets especially nervous by the final capper to the episode, which is that they read who the next guests are going to be, which are boys to men. Danny DeVito, and this is the one that really is the problem for Larry, Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, so here Larry's trying to reach for the remote before the words come out of his mouth, Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, but it doesn't happen. Jeannie holds on, and uh, we end on that freeze frame. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we will be back in a moment to wrap up. What are you doing with that Mimi Rogers 
nude scene thing. You can't talk about stuff like that on the air. What are you talking about? Like, you went way too hard on... It, it's part of her biography. It's, it's her body of work. Okay, I'm anyway, gonna... I'm, you like that? Her I'm, I'm cutting. I have to cut it out of the show. We can't leave that in. Is it too horny? Just listen to it. I'll put it on right now. Um, I just have to ask you, Max... What would you do in this situation? You have Mimi Rogers flirting with you on national television. The Mimi Rogers. The Mimi Rogers. Now, have you ever seen Mimi Rogers spread in Playboy? <laughs> no, I haven't. Did you did you look it up in research for this episode? Not for this episode. <laughs> okay. Um how how was it? I can't communicate this in an audio format. I don't know. Like people can Google if they're interested in the topic. You know, she does. She know. Uh, you know, she does mention uh, a sex scene earlier, so you know it is, I guess, relevant. And she actually, um, I believe, in a few movies had uh, nude scenes. There's a scene later in her career where she's getting a massage, a nude massage. It's actually very explicit. We see lots. Uh, getting massaged. Okay, so... Um, see, we can't use that. It just feels wrong. It, there's nothing wrong with it. So first of all, it's just nudity. You know, I'm a little more European than you in a certain sense. Oh my God. But, it, I mean, it's very explicit, the massage. And she's <laughs> relatively explicit during the episode. Oh my God. How many times did you watch it? I just think it... For our audience, like, if they want to Google it, they should know what they're Googling. Maybe some of them have already Googled it, and so this won't shock them or surprise them. It's just <laughs> Mimi Rogers uh, well, with so full actually... frontal nudity in her 40s. I don't see what the issue is. Okay, I'm just going to cut this out. I did this research specifically. She has, like, 15 minutes of screen time. It's relevant. Okay, well, good thing I edit the episodes. back so this is the part of the show where we give our final thoughts on the episode by giving it a new title max if you could rename the flirt what would you call it so i would call it eros and thanatos so pretentious well it's in the spirit of your uh, problematic fave slavoj zizek uh, i wanted to analyze this episode from a psychoanalytic perspective a lacanian perspective sure uh and in this episode, we really see the sex drive that Larry has, but also his self-destructive drive in action at the same time. And they're, they are in conflict, but they are also working in concert together to uh, create the neuroses that Larry is exhibiting in this episode. So to get off the couch, I will now uh, turn it over to you. Uh, you sure we're getting off in a certain sense. Um, I come to you with three alternative titles. Oh, my God. It, it's it's growing. The first is Red Hot. Okay. You might remember at the top of the episode, uh, they said the Red Hot Chili Peppers were playing. Mm -hmm, your favorite band. Yeah. Uh, Under the Bridge. Wow. That could be the could be the fourth title if I wanted. Um, the second is Kindling. 
Mm-hmm. Mimi Rogers, you know, talks about kindling. Uh, and the third is the directive that Larry gives to Mimi Rogers via Beverly. Don't flirt. I think those are three strong alternative titles. Each one in its own way gets at what's happening. It's about flirting. So I'm not really changing the idea of the show very much. You know, the underlying concept. And uh, it is three times as many as the uh, instructions asked you for. But um, so that's all the time we have for this episode. We'd like to thank Ken Quapis again for joining us. Mr. Quapis was very generous with his time and provided a lot of great information about production of the show. And as always, we'd like to thank Wendy Eisenberg for the theme music, Jody Bozine for the show artwork, and Dan Golden for booking our musical guests. You can find us on all social media with the handle at Larry Sanders Pod. And we will be back next time with a discussion of Season 1, Episode 7, Hank's Contract. Bye-bye. <laughs>